Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Welcome, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a nice, clear day outside, so we're, we're in good shape weather-wise. Yeah. it's a, Market's just a, a tick off its all-time highs. Yeah. Everything's going very well. Right. Actually, I think we were, I think they were pretty much peaking uh, the markets I'm, I'm speaking of more uh, last week, about a week ago today. They're off slightly a little bit from th- that period of time, but you're still looking at markets uh, very close to their all-time highs yeah. ever, uh, up substantially over the last uh, you know seven or eight years, effectively. Yeah, that's right. And with more good news as well, because we just saw a big ADP private sector uh, payroll number yesterday. 298,000 new jobs in the month of February. That's pretty extraordinary. I don't think we've seen a number that big in quite a while. It's a little bit hotter than what economists were expecting. They were expecting maybe about 190,000 jobs, uh, you know, increase in in jobs. And it is the ADP report, which then gets revised from the actual job number. And the concern here is that if the employment starts heating up too much, you're actually going to see an increase in interest rates over time, yeah, and so uh, the the concern is that the way it's working in the market right now, if you are seeing uh, job numbers that are better than expected, you, the anticipation is you're going to see interest rates rising faster than expected, okay, which could put some downward pressure on equity prices. So you don't really want to have the labor market heating up this much, and so I would I would take it as a slight negative, not a major negative. But a slight negative as to what's going forward. And also, you look at the timing too, because <coughs> next week is the uh, uh, is the Fed meeting on whether or not they're going to raise. Yeah, interest I think rates. They, I think she signaled she's very likely to raise rates during the March 14th and 15th meeting. And the question is not whether she's going to raise rates then, uh, but whether there's going to be subsequent rate increases over time. And as we've, yeah. we've mentioned several times, as interest rates are being uh, raised over time, uh, it's very possible for the market to do relatively well. It's when you have interest rates uh, rising and sort of uh, earnings collapsing uh, that the market comes under pressure. Uh, but during the early phases of an interest rate rise uh, program, you generally see the stock market performing relatively well. Because it's basically the interest rates going up is more to stop up a lot of what's what the growth is, right? Right. The interest rates are not being raised in a vacuum. They're being raised right. primarily because you're going to see economic growth starting to accelerate. Right. And if they do raise next week, I'm talking about the Fed raising, let's say, a 25 basis point hike, as we've seen uh, over the past year or so. Uh, so 75 to 100 would be the range, so 1% uh, the maximum. That's still not anything that to de- derail no, what we've got. A, the key is to look at the 10-year Treasury. And okay. uh, if the 10-year Treasury yield is around where it is, around 2%, a little bit over 2%, uh, and stocks are dividend yield on equities is around two percent, one point nine six percent. Equities remain very attractive uh, relative to bonds. It's when the ten year rate is at five percent, and then equities are at two percent, you have to start saying, well, then bond uh, bonds start to look more attractive. Okay. But right now, if I had to predict what would happen, 
I would say that you're going to see downward pressure on bond prices. You're going to see upward pressure on uh, on equities. You're going to see an initial uh, interest rate hike in March, but you're not going to see substantial uh, hikes after that uh, going forward. The, the key issue really right now is that there's there's going to be a political backlash <clears throat> due to the lack of labor's gains from GDP growth. Okay. So GDP growth is really showing up in corporate profit margins. Right. And it's not really showing up in labor. And if that continues, you're going to start to see more of this populism, which is really sweeping the globe. It's, it's hitting in the UK. It's hitting in the US. Uh, start to get more traction. Mm-hmm. And that is a concern. France has an election time. coming up. France has an election going up. And if it plays out like all the other Western democracies, you'd expect to see some sort of uh, disruption occurring in that mm-hmm. place. So the, the concern, again, the basic concept is if you own companies, it's a very good environment because corporate uh, earnings are going up, interest rates are relatively low. If you own the component stocks of the S&P 500 in a market cap weighting, you're getting a 2% dividend yield, plus you're getting the appreciation due to earnings growth over time. Now, a lot of that earnings growth is occurring due to issuing debt and buying back stocks, Mm -hmm. but that gets to this point that equities are cheap relative to bonds. What sort of causes this not to happen is, one, if you start seeing inflation really tick up, but again, we, 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 we're not seeing that. Mm-hmm. Or two, if there's sort of unrest in these uh, countries uh, due to the lack of uh, labor wage growth, effectively. And so, like, if a global market uh, weighed down uh, what the, the positives that we're seeing here domestically. Or, or if you just see strange things happening politically. So the, the, okay. the, the risk I see to the market right now is not financial or fundamental, and it's certainly not valuation. It really is sort of political effects due to uh, labor unrest. So that if you, you you have, if everything is allowed to sort of just it play out as it is, you're going to see uh, this trendward downward in terms of uh, interest rates is going to stay under pressure. Interest rates are going to come up a little bit, but they're not going to go up substantially. And you're going to see corporate earnings starting to come up. Right. So as you see those two things going together, uh, that's very, very beneficial for the stock market. Stocks remain cheap relative to bonds because interest rates are really low. So what stops that from happening are two things. One, interest rates rise dramatically. Or two, earnings start to fall dramatically uh, due to protectionism, effectively. Okay. I want to ask you about two things that are slightly, <coughs> I would say, sorry, Mark, that's okay. okay, slightly based into the market right now of equities, yeah. uh, and that are two, but there are two things that haven't happened yet. One is, uh, is tax reform, and one is deregulation. These are both uh, coming from uh, the, the GOP-led Congress they're, they're, and, and President Trump. They want to see taxes vastly reduced for corporations, and they want to see uh, deregulation as well. Those would be two more windfalls for the corporate side of things and for therefore equities, correct? I think that deregulation is less so. The, the corporate tax decreases is substantial. Sure. There's, <clears throat> there's been a, you know, Goldman has a list of companies that are paying, uh, publicly traded companies that are paying a high percentage of their earnings before taxes as uh, taxes. And those are the companies that would benefit the most from a potential decrease in the corporate tax rate. And they've been rallying very nicely. And about a week and a half ago, they started to come under uh, some degree of pressure. So again, the, the key issue is this. If you think of corporate taxes at like 35% uh, plus maybe a local tax rate, that means uh, out of a dollar of pre-tax earnings, probably only 60 cents 
is going to shareholders. So dividends are paid with uh, dividends are paid after taxes are paid. Uh, you know, and so if you see the corporate tax rate uh, fall, it's the same thing as seeing a massive doubling of revenue in terms of the effect of the shareholder. Right. And the shareholder doesn't care what's really going on with everything. They just care about what their earnings per share are going to be from owning that company. You'd rather have one share in a company that's generating $6 if the total earnings are $6 than uh, the millionth of a share of a company that's generating millions of dollars, right? right? So uh, what, what I think is, is, is likely to go on is that you're, you're going to see uh, effectively the decrease. If, if that decrease occurs, the market is not fully pricing it in, and you should see a rally in in the stock market. Even from here, interesting, because we've seen what fourteen percent. I, I think there's like a sixty or seventy percent chance that the, the market is pricing in as if there's going to be a corporate tax break of sixty to seventy percent. Okay. So if you think about, it, you have a sixty percent chance the market's going to go up, and a thirty percent chance the market's going to go down. If that sixty percent starts increasing to eighty or ninety percent, you're going to start to see. Uh, uh, stocks uh, stocks go up dramatically. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back a little bit into some of the details here with the ADP number. Construction payrolls jumped by 66,000 jobs last month. That's pretty significant because sometimes we'll see a monthly read where construction and manufacturing are in the negative. Right. And again, it's, it's highly tied to the interest rate environment. The lower the interest rate environment, uh, the easier it is to borrow money to engage in construction projects. And the greater you're going to see uh, construction payrolls sort of uh, tick upward. Okay. Um, so the same thing would so go. So same thing. So same thing. So what stops the construction payroll number? Uh, an increase in, in interest rates or a tightening of bank lending. So again, the, the reduction in regulation helps these banks lend more money. Uh, so you're going to see an increase in construction over time. Okay. And looking forward to tomorrow's Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, non-farm payroll report, which includes government uh, jobs as well as the private sector. Um Let's and the unemployment rate as well. So let's say the unemployment rate fell to 4.7 percent from 4.8. You're not really seeing a big deal here, or, or is there anything significant to be gleaned from this? We expect a stronger number, and then we expect a Fed, a Fed rate hike next week. Uh, is there anything beyond that? You can't put a lot of faith in sort of macro labor statistics. You can't really trade off them. You can't really change, make portfolio decisions off them. What you what you can do is say take a step back and project out five years. Where do you think interest rates are going to be? Okay. If you think the 10-year rate five years from now is going to be somewhere around 3%, the market is going substantially higher. Okay. If 10 years for if, if five years from now the 10-year rate is five, six, seven percent, uh, the market's going to be under some degree of pressure. Okay, because people will be rotating into that. Those. It's, it's just, it, it's very straightforward. It, it, it's like a stock's value is the present value of the future dividend payments you have from that stock. The difference is that it, it the dividend payments uh, grow over time and uh, there, there's no uh, there's no time limit. So it's a perpetuity on that company where you're getting the dividend payments from that company as long as uh, that company's uh, functioning. Okay. So what's the value of that stake? It's very much dependent upon interest rates. If I give you a dollar per per year for the net for the for forever, right? Mm -hmm. How much is that worth to you? How much will you pay for it? Well, there, there's a formula. You take the dollar and you divide it by the interest rate. So if the interest rate is a ten percent. You pay ten dollars today to get a dollar every year for, uh, for for forever in the future. But uh, you would you would pay uh, more if the interest rate is lower. If the interest rate is five percent, you're willing to pay twenty dollars. 
interest rate is one percent, that same one dollar is now worth a hundred dollars. Hmm. So we're in a one percent interest rate environment. So those dividend payments paid by the companies, by the publicly traded corporations, are worth a tremendous amount of money. Right. Now the question is, well, what if the the uh, inter- what if the earnings are growing? In that case, it, it's you you do the math. It's slightly different, and it's it's basically the uh, the dividend payment. Uh, and you do it divided by R, which is the interest rate minus the growth of the uh, payment that occurs over time. Okay. So again, if you if you have if I give you a dollar per year for the next hundred years, and I say how much is that worth to you in a ten percent interest rate environment, that mathematically is worth ten dollars to you. Right. Because if I give ten dollars to you, and you take the ten dollars and you invest it at ten percent. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the end, you'll have the same amount of money as if I give you a dollar each year uh, for the next 100 years. OK. OK. If that interest rate is one percent, that one dollar per year is worth one hundred dollars to you. Right. And that's what's going on in the market is that the when the interest rate is relatively low, it causes stock prices to go up because the present value of the dividend payments uh, has to be higher. And so the question becomes, well, what's going to happen to interest rates in the future? And how fast are earnings going to grow? Earnings growing is pretty much, they're going to grow in the future about what they grew in the past. Now, there's going to be a difference in which stocks grow and which companies and whether that growth is sort of broad-based or concentrated mm-hmm. uh, based on these uh, structural uh, factors occurring in the market. Uh, but, but generally speaking, I would project earnings are going to continue to grow in the future. And the question is how high are interest rates are going to rise. Right. And in my mind, that's the, the primary driver of stock prices right now or over the next three to five years is how much are interest rates going to increase. If the Fed goes on a tear and starts raising rates quarter after quarter after quarter, mm-hmm. you're going to have to see some downward pressure on the market. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think that they're going to raise once or twice, and then you're going to see, I think five years from now, the 10-year Treasury uh, should be a little bit above 3%. I don't think it's going to be substantially higher. Because if it's ever another quarter percent every quarter, right. then we're talking about uh, quite much, significant. Much higher. And yeah. the reason is there's just too much deflationary pressure occurring in the world due to globalization and technological change. Right. There's just too much. It, it's like you look at Uber, you look at the price of, you know, Uber makes no sense. It, it, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense as a company. It doesn't really increase productivity. You have one driver helping one person. It's not causing the productivity of that driver to be that dramatic. It really is is, is just sitting there, but it's putting downward pressure on the price of cab rides. And this sort of technological change is occurring in many, many different industries. Mm-hmm. It's putting downward pressure on prices. So inflation is tamped down due to technological change. The other thing that's going on is globalization. Uh, labor markets are now becoming globalized. And as a result, it's putting downward pressure on wages. And uh, if you don't see protectionism start to grow, which we hope it doesn't, those two factors, technological change and globalization, should keep a tamp on inflation uh, in the immediate future, I would say the next three to five years. So I'm relatively bullish about the market uh, given where we are with interest rates and given where we are with corporate earnings. Uh, But again, I look at the base rate and I would project out, and I would say the market has a good chance of growing at about 7% on an annualized basis, about six to 9% above the risk-free rate over the next uh, seven to 10 years. Has this really changed at all over the past six months? Hasn't, you look at, you know, I, I started in the business in the in the mid '90s. Uh, I look at the chain. The market was maybe about 450. The S and P 500 was at that point, uh, right before the 08 crash. 
it was about thir- uh, thir- 1400 and now it's you know 2300 mm-hmm. so if i if i ignore all the fluctuations and all the craziness over which that has time been plenty, period, yeah. which has been plenty and it, it's a new thing every 3 to 5 years that you can't predict i go back and i say we started at 4 i you know, i remember it at 450 and we're essentially at about 2300 uh, the 400 became 800, the 800 became 1600, and the 1600 went up another 50%. So again, you're looking at a doubling of the size of the market every 10 years approximately. And that's going to continue to happen over time due to the compounding effect of reinvesting uh, your, your investment proceeds. So if you can invest in the market, ignore the fluctuation, maybe interest rates will go up, maybe they'll go down, market might co- uh, come under pressure for a couple of years, it might go up very highly for a couple of years. But if you keep your eye on the long game, what you see is that every 10-year period, every 11-year uh, period, maybe if the market's doing well, every seven-year period, you're seeing a doubling of the market. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And so, uh, well, I had a question there, but I don't. I no, it's fine. It we can go to break. And we got one more minute or something that, like that's that. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. But at the, no, that sounds very. That sounds very promising. I mean, as far as well, it's not promising. It's very hard. The only reason you can get there is because that that doubling is is full of fraught of risk and uh, you know danger essentially. Well, because you're looking at the long term. You're looking you know, at a lot the long term, happen. and you pull yourself out, and you ignore the 07, 08 crisis becomes a blip. It, it, in a historical term, 30 years from now, looking back at historical numbers, they're going to say, oh, look, in 08, it fell 35%, and then it bounced back a couple of years later. It, it, so if you, if, you take your, if you take a longer view, all these fluctuations and these questions of market timing become irrelevant, mm-hmm. and you can just invest in the market and have the compound effect of uh, your investment occur over time, and it's really the time that you're in the broad market effect. Terrific. Uh, We're going to take a short break, Mitch, and we're going to come back and continue this conversation. Please uh, stay with us on The Steady Investor. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zats.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zats.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 
That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the second segment of The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery with Mitch Zaks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, we were having a nice conversation about what's going on in the market with uh, the labor force and, right. and that sort of thing. Uh, I wanted to talk, well, and we're going to talk about, uh, there's a Mitch's mailbox coming in later, I have a question from somebody, okay. and also Mitch on the markets, which I always like to bring up the, the thing. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, we are talking about growth. Usually we talk about U.S. growth. We've done okay. so much better. Uh, but we're starting to see some traction in China. We saw uh, Mario Draghi came out today, said mm-hmm. things are, you know, with, with the, the kind of the, the open-ended uh, uh, fiscal financial policies that they've got there seeming to take effect. They're dialing back how much they're buying back in euros uh, from 80 billion to 60. So we're seeing some, I guess the long story short, we're seeing progress where we hadn't seen it for a yeah. long time. And then the international markets are up stronger year to date. Uh, than the U.S. market. So yeah. you have two things going on here. One is sort of in the short term, the U.S. markets have appreciated much faster at a higher rate than the European or the Asian markets. So the international markets are cheap, cheaper relative to the U.S. than they have been. Okay. Uh, so from a, just a sort of a short-term perspective, you would expect that if the recovery continues, when things recover, uh, what you usually do is you look at there's a group of stocks, a bunch of oil stocks, and some recovery happens, and some of the oil stocks shoot up. You buy the ones that haven't shot up because they're going to move with the movement in oil. So okay. the one trade is to say, okay, you look at this. The global economy is recovering. The U.S. leads the global economy. Uh, the U.S. is going uh, – P multiples are higher than uh, the developed and emerging market. You buy the developed and emerging market. And that probably makes sense for a couple of years. But if you take a step back and you look at sort of a longer term, more global perspective, you talk to people in China, they're trying to get their money out of the country. The country is, is stopping them from removing money from China. They're, hmm. they're, they're putting in capital controls. They're, they're all buying Bitcoin. They are making money in a Chinese company. They own a Chinese company. And their first thing they want to do is get the money out of China. Okay. You talk to people in Europe, and it's it's similar types of ideas. So you, you have sort of the stability of these foreign countries is, may not be as great in a time of crisis or stress as people are somewhat anticipating now. So the problem with international investing is that it's supposed to give you diversification. But what really happens is that when the markets come under stress, Mm -hmm. that diversification disappears. So that what you're expecting is you're expecting, okay, the Chinese market is going to trade independently of the U.S. I put some in the U.S., I put some in China. They're going to move in different ways, and I'm going to reduce my overall risk. When China zigs, the U.S. will zag. When the U.S. goes down, and that works when things are well. But when things come under pressure, what happens is the U.S. falls and the Chinese market uh, falls much, much further. And that's always happened in financial markets over the last, uh, in the post-World War II era. It didn't happen necessarily prior to World War II, but in the post-World War II era, where the U.S. is the dominant economy globally, uh, that's always happened. So you don't gain a diversification effect in bad times. You only gain a diversification effect in good times. But you don't necessarily need diversification in good times. The times you want diversification is when things are under pressure. 
So you have that, and then you have so you you have this concept that the foreign markets are cheaper. That's definitely true. Uh, you have this issue that when uh, things come under pressure, the foreign markets move in line with the U.S. markets. You have this sort of anecdotal evidence that people in China are trying to get their money out of China. Mm. Why would we want to be putting money into Chinese corporations when the owners of those corporations want to 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 to, to remove themselves from China? And you have the more important thing, which is sort of just the general trend. The general trend seems to be away from labor and towards tech uh, technological change. So that what China, what Brazil, what India truly offers mm -hmm. is very, very low labor costs. Right. And if I had to project 20 years into the future, my anticipation is that there's going to be an increase in manufacturing in the U.S. as the component, as the labor component of manufacturing becomes lower and lower and lower. The actual people working. The actual number of people working. Yeah. So what, what is China's advantage or what is India's advantage? It's that they have labor that is very, very inexpensive and highly capable. Mm -hmm. As things become more automated, it, that's going to be less and less of an advantage. And so if I had to say, well... I, I can see something where, where cars are going to start being produced where the uh, automation is, is, is most widely developed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I just, over time, what you expect to happen is the disruption that technology is, is generating to benefit those countries that allow that disruption the most and have the best ways of funding that disruption. The U.S. economy isn't good at a lot of things. But one of the things the U.S. economy is extraordinarily good at is funding disruption and embracing disruption. The it's, change. It, right. it, it, it's very good at change. You don't have the same labor frictions you have in Europe. You have this developed group of uh, people who will be willing to try capital on new ideas. There's not culturally a uh, penalty for trying to engage in entrepreneurship and have that entrepreneurship not work out. So. If you had to project in the future, the expectation is the more closed the society, the harder it is going to be for that society to participate in the technological change that's likely going to, 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 to start accelerating. And so if that occurs and automation sort of starts to take over, you would expect those societies that can easily replace labor with automation uh, to be growing at the fastest rate. That would be the U.S. Right. So what happens to all these emerging markets? It's not the old idea that, well, everyone's going to catch up to the U.S. The U.S. starts becoming sort of the superstar firm the same way that Amazon is a superstar firm against Macy's. Mm -hmm. So it's the same sort of technological pressure uh, that's allowing certain firms to do much better than other firms is going to allow the more developed countries to run away from the emerging market. And that's, in the long run, what I would anticipate to have happen. Instead of the standard view, which is that uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be uh, Brazil or India in uh, 50 years now looks like the U.S. effectively. And they're on the same level. So it's not that everyone gets raised to the U.S. and the U.S. grows slowly. If this concept of technological change takes place mm -hmm. and if they don't screw it up by, you know, by totally engaging in protectionism or something like that, mm -hmm. what happens is there's a drain of human resources from around the world 
into the U.S., into the U.S. economy, and the U.S. economy then accelerates. So the same way in the U.S., the larger, more technically sophisticated organizations are pulling away from other organizations, the U.S. as an economy as a whole is going to begin to pull away uh, from these emerging markets. So over the long run, I'm not convinced that the emerging market is going to grow at a faster rate. I would actually much rather have my money in the U.S., in a U.S. bank, uh, than say, oh, you know, we can go uh, walk around in uh, Brazil and see what's available there and invest in all these companies in Brazil. Mm-hmm. I, I think that over, if this occurs, if the opposite occurs and sort of the knowledge base or the technical sophistication becomes widely distributed, then the lower labor uh, costs of these emerging markets are going to uh, be the driving factor and the emerging markets are going to do a lot better. But I don't think that that I, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I don't think you're going I, I don't think you're going to see the level. I think you're going to continue to see the most technically sophisticated people come to the U.S. And if that is allowed to occur, it's, it's going to cause the U.S. Uh, to continue to grow. But if the technical, if the know-how is not widely distributed, uh, it's going to be very, very hard for the emerging markets ever to catch up. Okay. And you see that in the oil patch, like very clearly. You see, well, they have the oil in Venezuela, they have the oil in these places, but what happened is then there was a technical change mm-hmm. that benefited the U.S. And fracking. Mm-hmm. Tremendously. Right. And the rest of these countries, they're entirely, their entire economy is dependent upon developing oil. The oil prices are, 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 you know, fell yesterday by 5%. They seem to be a, a ceiling of $50 a barrel of oil because if it gets too high, they start uh, effectively starting the fracking. Yeah. And that. so and so that sort of structure is going to probably put downward pressure on the emerging markets going forward. So I, 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 I would recommend, you know, 15 to 30%, 15, 20% of total investable assets in international with maybe a a 60-40 split with 60% of that going to the developed market and 40% going to the emerging market. But I wouldn't want to dramatically overweight the international markets. Now, this is contrary to most large pension funds. If you go to a large pension fund, they would say, well, you really want uh, maybe, you know, the U.S. is maybe... 55, 60% of GDP of the world, probably less. In terms of market value, it's probably close to that. Uh, You really don't want to put all your assets in the U.S. basket. Let's diversify. And this worked very, very well in the 2099, the late 90s and 2000, and it stopped working after the uh, crisis. And so the best... In 2008. 2008. The best allocation since the crisis has been to overweight the U.S., Okay, and and the the question is, did the crisis sort of accelerate this change that's occurring, or is there something fundamentally uh, that's causing the level of uh, development in the emerging market to slow down? And okay. I think that there is something going on in the emerging market to cause it to slow down. But what's going to happen is, if this plays out, it's going to cause much more tension between all these countries. If everyone's on an equal level, people don't get worked up. Okay. If you're living in a third world country and the U.S. is getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and your standard of living is going up, but it's not nearly as close to the U.S., uh, you, as a country, you start getting a little bit worked up effectively. Okay. And, yeah, then there's a bunch of and other things. And then there's political that, activity well, that's right. that occurs. And, that, and that's that's the problem, I think. Right. Okay. Um, so, but when you look back 10, 12 years ago at a place, let's say China, the second uh, largest economy, yeah. they were growing at 10, 11, 12 percent. 
a year, which was insane. So, I mean, that, that had to come down eventually. So that's what we're kind of, that's what we're seeing right now, that it's kind of, the equilibrium has kind of taken hold a little bit more. When in the 80s in college, I, I told you this, at Yale, everyone wanted to study Japanese. It was the biggest thing that yeah. everyone wanted to do. They right. all signed up for Japanese classes. Everyone. People would go and sacrifice to go work in Tokyo uh, just so they could put, they can speak Japanese on their uh, resumes. Uh, investment banks used to put in their icon that they would have bonsai trees and things like that to show how involved they are with the Japanese. And there was a belief that Japan was going to continue to grow. They just, they're going to buy Rockefeller Center. They're going to buy this icon. They're going to buy that icon. And any sort of growth is going to have to get, uh, you're going to have to learn Japanese. And there was a whole set of pop cultural uh, movies of, of this. I can sure. think of right where uh, Wesley Snipes or whoever it is runs around in Japan and things and, and the Kyoto, look, they all work together and they don't have corporate earnings and they all collectively are a monolithic uh, machine that's going to demolish the U.S. economy. And what happened is the growth rate slowed. I remember very clearly sitting in an economics class and everyone saying, well, uh, talking about long-term economic growth and people saying, well, look how fast Japan is growing. It's going to just continue growing. Professor, it's impossible. You can't grow that fast over long periods of time. Right. You're going to have to have a moderation. The same thing's going to have to happen in China. You're going okay. to have to have a moderation. You're going to have to have a slowdown. The same way that in the 1980s, everyone was very concerned about Japan. I see it very similar. Now they're all concerned about China. And I think the same thing is likely going to happen. You're going to have, you have this very high acceleration of growth as they go from zero to 50. But okay. then to get from 50 to 100 is much, much, much harder to do. Okay. And the Chinese economy has all sorts of issues. It's it's not quite a capitalist economy. There's still this planned sort of centralized economic thinking. Oh, sure. You still see uh, buildings being built with no one to fill it. You still see roads being built going nowhere. And that came up, and China was going to have a hard landing. And I think in 2016, in January, that was a major reason the market came under pressure. And then right. China intervened in the economy, and, the, and it stopped. There's a limit to how much that intervention can occur. Uh, in the immediate term, I don't think it's an issue. But over the long term, I just... I have trouble seeing, well, the innovations that are occurring in information technology are coming out of China as opposed to China just copying what uh, the U.S. is doing. Okay. So the question is, where does the innovation come from? Can the Chinese society, through their educational system and ever, make a real play for making the innovation? And as of now, it's not because these these innovation hubs have some sort of sort of network externality. Everyone wants to go study at Harvard because all the bright professors are there. So it's very, very hard to start up a university and then compete with Harvard. You have to, you can get one good professor or two, but you have to get them all coming together at the same time. Yeah. And then everyone wants to be there. And then the value of that becomes higher to, to, to people looking to learn things. So because of those advantages in the US, it's very hard for China to sort of copy uh, what's going on in Silicon Valley. Right. They, 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 can, they can look at what's occurred in Silicon Valley and then go to Facebook and say, you're not allowed into China. We're going to create our own social network. Mm -hmm. But what that will result in is one social network for China 
and one social network for the rest of the world. Right. And that's exactly what's happening. That's the protectionist and, thing and you protectionist were saying. Protectionist thing you were saying. So what, what happens is that these, the, the, these network sort of externalities that occur in technological development where certain cities, certain areas are able to generate more technological change. Mm-hmm. If Columbus, Ohio wanted to become a leader I should be careful, but if Columbus, Ohio wanted to become a leader in technological development, it's going to be very difficult for them to do. To compete with Silicon Valley. And and the reason is why why is that? It's just all because of the labor force around there, the culture and whatever. These things are not easy to duplicate. You can't just have the Ohio governor say, okay, we're going to start giving, um, you know, awards and grants to new companies and everyone's going to move to Ohio. There's still going to be mainly occurring in Palo Alto, in Boston, uh, in, in other places, in, in, in Texas a little bit, these major hubs of, of sort of uh, innovation that are occurring in the U.S. So if the economy starts becoming more dependent on that innovation, you would expect the countries that have the ability to engage in that innovation to do very well. And it's going to be very, very difficult for other countries to duplicate that activity. Right. You, can't just, you can't just command that. It's very different from trying to get a bunch of people to think creatively and create tech companies that is to try and say, let's drill some more holes in the ground and pull up some oil. Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah. And plus, it takes a lot of time. I don't mean to belabor it, but, uh, you know, Silicon Valley took 20, it 30 took 20, years. 20, 30 to, years. Yeah. And it's very, and every other city in the country is trying to duplicate it. Yeah. And it, you can't because there's an externality that's like it's like a network externality. The same way that the value of Facebook is because everyone's on Facebook, the value of Silicon Valley is everyone's in Silicon Valley. Right. So if the, if the innovation is occurring, it's better to be there than it is to be in uh, you know in Rhode Island or something like that. Sure, uh, Facebook's a great example. They started at Harvard, <laughs> right? And they, they moved to, and they, they moved, moved they moved to Palo Alto. And again, right. it's it, 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 and if that is what's driving the growth, and you kind of see that occurring. Right, you kind of see Apple, you kind of see Google, you kind of see Facebook. These companies getting much, much larger. Mm-hmm. You kind of see Exxon sort of uh, digging into their capital reserves to make dividend payments. Mm-hmm. You kind of see downward pressure on the energy companies over time. And so, if that's the way that it continues, that's not going to lend itself towards more investment in China. Right. Let's leave it there, Mitch. We'll be right back after a short break. Stay with us with the City Investor. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, 
Give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners, to the third and final segment of The Steady Investor this week, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery with Mitch Zax, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. And before we continue our conversation, Mitch, I just wanted to say to the listeners out there, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, call Zax Investment Management right here in Chicago, 800 918 3114. And we can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, for more information, you can also email us at info at zimwealth, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com, or visit our website, again, zimwealth.com. And to call into the show to speak with Mitch Zach's uh, personally, uh, that number is 866-472-5790. So, uh, and we're going to have another free uh, stock market outlook giveaway, too, at the 800-918-3114 number. I believe that'll be uh, put together by John Blank, and it should be coming okay. out tomorrow, or should be coming out maybe Monday, uh, but the, the comprehensive report that we get on a monthly basis about the, uh, the market strategy, the market stock market outlook. Okay, Mitch, so uh, we have more people um, uh, offering their questions okay. or asking questions of you, uh, what your, of your expertise. A real simple one from Kristen and Chester from St. Louis. Um, the question is, is there a magic number for knowing how much to save for retirement? It's a very good question. And what I'd like to do is sort of answer it by going backwards. So what I'd like to do is the best way to to do this is to say, what do you want to consume in retirement per year? So so the way I would start is say, listen, how much do you want to spend each year in retirement? So let's say it's a a generally mass affluent person and they're saying they want to spend $100,000 per year in retirement. And then I take a step back, I say, well, to to spend $100,000 per year in retirement, uh, you really, let's assume that the market conservatively, if we're managing it after fees, we can generate a 7% uh, sort of rate of return. Mm-hmm. And let's say inflation is running at maybe uh, 2%, okay, which okay. is a little bit lower, let's say 2 to 3%, but let's say conservatively 2%. So that means that each year, if we can generate a 7% rate of return, and 2% of it is inflation's running at 2%. There's about 5% in actual growth of the portfolio. Okay. So if I say that that's what I can spend from that portfolio, mm-hmm. I'm left with 5% of what is going to get me to $100,000. So it's about $2 million. Okay. So if I take $2 million, I make 7% in the market. Some years I'm going to do very well. Some years I'm going to do very poorly. I take 5% out and consume about $100,000 each year. 
what should happen is at the end of your consumption period, when you're passing it on to your heirs, you should see the dollar amount uh, equal to the same spending amount as the $2 million. Okay. So what you need to do is look, and now the issue becomes, can someone actually do that? Can they go in retirement, only have $2 million in uh, their net worth, say, I'm going to put it all in the market and live on $100,000? It's going to be fine for them when the market's going up. Sure. But when the market falls, they're, they're, all hell is going to break loose. They're, they're just the psychological impact of not having uh, any income, mm -hmm. being invested, seeing the market go down 15, 20 yeah. percent, and taking out 100,000. You'd be like, well, that's crazy. I'm never going to do it. So, what you have to do is you have to realize that your ability to take out money is dependent upon what rate of return you can generate with the retirement assets. Okay. So, I would generally say that you, know, you, you probably should have. Uh, you, you, they could reduce the the best case scenario is to have it in the equities or 100% equities because the rate of return is the highest and then you can take the most money out. So the way to do it is to look, to think about what sort of return you want to generate. Okay. Reduce it by the inflation rate. And that's the amount that you could safely sort of pull out from that retirement amount each year and not run into an issue of sort of dipping into the inflation adjusted principle. So that's the idea mostly, that they have that money work for you and then that's what you'd live on. You have, you live on the pros, you live on the gains you generate from the retirement assets. Right. Right. So, so, so that that's that way. Now you, if you don't do that, uh -huh. and you take the $2 million and you just put it in cash mm -hmm. and you start taking out a hundred thousand each year, after 20 years, you're out of money. Right. And that's the difference. So yeah. you take in one case, you take the two million dollars you put in the market. You have to deal psychologically with these massive movements of the market. Mm -hmm. The market generates a seven percent return. You take out a hundred thousand dollars. After twenty years, there should be about two million dollars in there, uh, more than two million dollars. But it'll be the the inflation adjusted equivalent of two million dollars. Okay. Uh, but if you don't do that and you don't get a high enough rate of return on the retirement savings. You will start dipping into the principal, and you will you you conceivably could run out of money. Yeah. So it's 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 a very fine line because if you do that, you seem very safe initially, but you run into problems later on. Mm -hmm. And if you invest it in the market, you you start to get worried as soon as you start seeing market fluctuations over time. Right. Right. And so the the key is to make sure that you adjust the amount you're pulling out so that it's. If you look at the return you're generating less the inflation, that's the amount that you're pulling out effectively. Okay. Well, Kristen and Chester, we thank you very much for your question and hope that uh, hope that helps. But generally speaking, uh, we'd say in the range of 15 to 20 percent of total household income, if you can save, which is very difficult for some people, mm -hmm. would be a good uh, sort of level to shoot for effectively. Okay. Say that one more time so we get so, it. I would say between 15, 10 to 20 percent with an average of about 15 percent of pre of uh, post tax income, if you could save that, that you're in very good shape uh, to sort of uh, retire on. Okay, but you have to do that for an extended period of time, which some people have a difficulty doing. Mm, sure. So that's how you see that that come up. Right. But that's good. That's good. And that's part of what the steady investor is all about is trying to, trying to figure out. Uh, but the, how but that can... money would need to be invested in the market over this period of time. That's right. So there's two questions. That's one is what, mattress. Once you're, once you're retired and you have a, a, a retirement assets, how much can you take out each year uh, and still not deplete your principal? Second is how do you get to that level? Mm -hmm. The way you get to the level is you try and put 10 to uh, 15% of your after tax income saved away 
and invest it in the market over time. Right. Then, then once you get there, you then have to also figure out how much you can take out. But right. that, that, that's generally a very – at about the 15% level over a 50- or 60-year period, you should be set uh, to then take out – uh, you know the income levels you need uh, from the retirement, and savings. I think that's a nice. And also, this can be a complicated process. But when you just say, "Look, fifteen percent allocated toward your retirement," I think that's a pretty easy uh, number to remember. Well, life gets in the way. I mean, people yeah. have all sorts of things that that occur. But if you can hit that number, you're in, you're in really good shape for a twenty to thirty year period, assuming you can appreciate that at the you know at eight to nine percent uh, annualized rate of return. Right. Right, great. Well, we also have Mitch on the Markets, which is from Zach's Investment okay. Management's website, and this is a, an article I always look forward but to Mark, reading. Mark, just on this, uh, yeah, the important yeah, thing is wanna... one of the reasons why it sort of helps to deal with an investment advisor. Uh-huh. So that if you call up us at Zach's or you talk to someone at Zach's, I'm primarily you know, running the portfolios, uh, but they would work with you to try and figure out exactly what the retirement savings plan should be and exactly what you should then be able to take out. And all of it is based on assumptions in terms of uh, earnings growth uh, in terms of market appreciation and how much you're you're taking out uh, from retirement. Right. But over long periods of time, the estimates are relatively accurate. Over short periods of time, there's a there's a tremendous amount of volatility because something could happen. Something and- could happen next year. You don't expect the election. It goes up ten percent when you're not expecting it. Things mm-hmm. of that sort. Uh, over long periods of time, the uh, expectations of a seven to nine percent annualized rate of return. Very accurate. Over short periods of time, it's just not there. Right. Okay. Well, good to know. Okay. Um, moving on to the article that I read uh, recently. How can you capitalize on uncertainty? Um, you know, there's been some notable shortages in this economic expansion, GDP growth, inflation, the shortage of personal income growth, lackluster private business investment, loan growth that hasn't quite kept up with demand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's resulted in what we term muddle through economic growth. And it's growth that's acceptable, but runs, runs a bit short on inspiration from the article. Okay. Um, so let's start with that. The key issue is to realize that whatever is going on in the world, the market is pricing the sort of base rate scenario so that the market will appreciate at a 7 to 9% rate of return. Okay. If things happen worse than what's expected, it will fall. Mm-hmm. If things happen better than what's expected, it will rise. So you have to realize that each year, sometimes things will happen better than expected. Some things will happen worse than expected. But on average, the market is pricing itself to appreciate at the 7 to 9% rate of return. So you have to sort of ignore the uncertainty, embrace the uncertainty, but realize that the reason there, the, the uncertainty is the reason the market can appreciate at the 7 to 9% rate of return. As soon as you get into investment uh, strategies, investment instruments that have no uncertainty, the rate of return goes very close to the rate of holding on cash, mm. close to zero. So you're being paid to bear that uncertainty, but the, the market prices itself so the uncertainty works in your favor over time. Okay. Well, that's and, and that's very clearly what happens with the market over time. So the key is that realize that when you know, there's fear in the marketplace, what that really is doing is it's just depressing prices so that if you invest in them, you can make a greater rate of return over, you know, in in the future. So it's very hard to understand this, but that's really the market is, it really is, I keep saying this, the triumph of the optimist. 
and there are periods of time, years, when the market is under pressure and things look very, very bad for the market. But if you can ignore that uncertainty and just stay invested over long periods of time, you go back to what I was talking about. In 1995, uh, the S&P 500 was at like 450. Now it's at yeah. 20, 2400. Yeah. I don't look back and think that the period from 1995 to 2015 was some phenomenal period for the United States. I don't think things got necessarily that much better, that much different, blah, blah, blah. You know, one was pre-internet, one was post-internet. It was yeah. The internet came about in 1996. Really, it became commercialized maybe in the 97, 98. But the basic concept is that if you can invest in the market and stay invested and not get shaken out when the market falls in the 2000 crash, in the 2008 crash, you generally make good rates of return over time. Sure. The but year 2009 was a terrific year to be It was be a very market. good year to be in the market. Was there a lot of uncertainty that year? There was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. In That's that right. So again, the market's movement is based on what it expects to occur and whether those expectations are met. So in periods of high uncertainty, mm -hmm. when there's a lot of turmoil, the expectations are much, much lower. In periods when things are going well, expectations become much, much higher. Okay. And it becomes easier to sort of surprise uh, to, the downside. to the downside. So it increases the risk when you see it increases that. Increases the risk. The higher the market goes, the, the higher the risk. The lower the market goes, the lower the risk. But the market is going lower because of the uncertainty that's surrounding the, the economy effectively. Okay, so we're seeing lots of expectations now. Are we seeing increased risk well, that, as well? That, I mean, you have to, right? The market has to be riskier at 2350 than it was at uh, you know 670. It has to be a riskier yeah. place. But you have to realize that if you can invest and you ignore the fluctuations, I'm very confident that over the next 10 years, at some point in time, there'll be a crash, there'll be a panic, all this stuff will happen. If you can ignore it, 10 years from now, you're going to be higher than where you are today. How much higher? I think you'd probably be about, a, if you include dividends and you include returns and you're at maybe a 7% annualized rate of return, I'd say over a 10-year period, doubling your investment is not unheard of. But that 10-year period it's hard to stay invested over that 10-year period. But if you can, the concept of saying in 2026, oh my God, 2026, you're going to see if people invested a million dollars today, they'll have $2 million in 2026. Even from be, these levels. Even from these levels here. and this levels, it'll come down, it'll go this, there'll be a crash, there'll be a, a collapse, there'll mm -hmm. be a, a market panic, there'll be three political events that no one have expected, four geopolitical events that no one expected. I'm very comfortable saying that even at these levels, if you put $2 million into the uh, S&P 500 and you wait 20 years, uh, you wait 10 years, you should have $4 million in 10 years. Yeah. Now, it sounds very easy, <laughs> but what happens is it's not a straight line. Yeah. At some point in time, that $2 million is going to be worth $1.5 million, and you're going to be thinking it's going to go it's going to go down to a million and you're going to be really worked up the key to equity investing is not being afraid to lose money and when you lose money not changing your strategy and if you can do those two things if you can be indifferent from losing money which is very hard for people to do mm -hmm. and if you can not change your strategy when you lose money you can do very well yeah. If you start changing your strategy, you do not do well, or if your strategy is non-diversified to begin with. If you own all the MLP stocks and they go down, you are in a 
buttload of trouble because you're having a very difficult decision of whether to change. But I'll turn it back to you, Mark. But yeah, no, we're just, we're I, I just want to you know, leave with the philosophy that if you can do that over long periods of time, you can do relatively well in the market. Terrific. With Mitch Sachs, I'm Mark Vickery. Stay tuned or be with us next week for The Steady Investor. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 